And good evening, good morning, and good afternoon to our loyal listeners out there, wherever you may be on this rotating globe, we sometimes refer to as Mother Earth. Mother Earth will be part of the discussion tonight because these ET experiments uh, may be tapping into the Earth's aura, otherwise known as the Schumann Resonance, and we'll get to that a bit later. Uh, first, I got a few shout-outs, and the first one goes to, oh, my name is Jonathan Womack. Uh, for those who are not familiar with me, Richard is out tonight, and I want to send a shout-out to him. He's in New Mexico. They have these wildfires going on, and, and the valley where he lives is full of smoke and other unhealthy particulates, so his voice is... Um, yeah, it's not so good. He's, uh, he's having a tough time, so I'm going to fill in for him tonight, and hopefully uh, he'll be back tomorrow or at the worst next weekend. And I also want to send a shout-out to our friend and colleague, Georgia Lambert. She's a regular on the show. Um, wonderful lady. We love her dearly. Today's her birthday, so happy birthday, Georgia. And Good health and wellness to you. And thirdly, uh, I want to send out a, a private shout out to my mother. Her birthday was about 10 days ago. She turned 90. And we had a big party two weeks ago at the local church. And there was like 75 people. And it was really fun and cool. And But she was hoarse afterwards. And the next day she couldn't talk. And now two weeks later, she still cannot she hasn't got her voice back. So um, let's send her a get well wish and hopefully she will, she will get better. So tonight my guests are Maria Wheatley, David Sarita, Thomas Mathers, and we're going to continue our analysis of these ET receptions that we've been getting since December. So for those of you who are new, we sent a signal out to Amuamua, an encoded message. We got some crazy message back. And we've been repeating this, uh, sending the signals from Stonehenge, courtesy of Maria Wheatley. And that's what we'll be reviewing tonight, is that um, not only her hour and 20-minute uh, recording, but also the recordings of a few other people, Richard, uh, our friend Ralph, and uh, another person who I don't know, his name is Paul, who went out in the woods and meditated and recorded the message. So that was pretty cool. But, uh, that's tonight's show. And I'd like to first bring on Maria and have her talk about her plans to go to the King's Chamber at the Great Pyramid and send our encoded message and record any signals that she got back and what happened and, uh, you know, circumstances changed all that and Richard suggested a backup plan and on and on. So Maria will share all that. And the way to get to the show page is to visit our website online www.theothersideofmidnight.com and 
you'll see a banner for tonight's show, Maria's Continuing Adventures in ET Communications. You can click on that, and it takes you to tonight's show page. And there you will find the various bios and uh, items that we'll be discussing tonight. Now, for folks, I'm not sure if um, we're going to have callers tonight during the last half hour, but um, let's throw it out there. The number to call, uh, 917-889-8802. If you have a question or a comment you'd like to add, that's 917-889-8802, and that's uh, the last half hour of the show. So let's get started. Um, I'm going to read a bit about Maria here. She's quite an interesting soul. She's a second-generation dowser who was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomance. She is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. Maria is an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing. And moving down to the end of her bio there, it says, Maria teaches advanced dowsing techniques, which are not taught anywhere else in the world. And you can read her full bio there on the show page. So without further ado, welcome back to the show, Maria. How are you? Yes, I'm very well. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, tell us about your plans to travel to Egypt with your friend Brian Forster and then you decided to do this side trip to the King's Chamber um, that coincides with our ET communication research so what is the deal well I was due to fly out to Cairo to join Brian Forster and Patricia Arian on, uh, on a tour that was going to be from the 18th of March, which happened to coincide with my full moon birthday. Uh, and we were going to be traveling around uh, all the sites of ancient Egypt until the 1st of April. And I was thoroughly looking forward to going to Egypt, as I always do. But uh, a few days before departure, uh, unfortunately, I tested uh, positive for COVID and came down with COVID-like symptoms, which came on quite fast. Just a few hours after texting Patricia Arian, the main organizer of the trip, she too came down with COVID. And the following day, Brian Forrester contacted me and he tested positive <laughs> for COVID. So there was no way uh, I was going to be able to join the tour and and nobody really could join the tour due to uh to covid i've never been on a tour before where all of the tour leaders become ill so it was quite something so the the trip as far as i can i was concerned and brian and patricia was a no-go yeah what are the odds of that happening they're fairly astronomical so your feeling was that this was a good thing, and you you mentioned that you had some sort of, um, I don't want to say apparition, but you felt like maybe you received a kind of paranormal warning from your father. Is that true? 
That's right. I was having a paranormal activity in my house for quite, quite some time. Communication mainly through my lights. Uh, I have, you know, side lamps like we all do and, and fairy lights uh, in, in my home as well. And each time I was talking either on, a, on the phone or even text on my phone about Egypt, the lights kept flashing on and off quite dramatically. So I felt that something was, you know, going to be amiss, as it were. I didn't think it would be my own health uh, at all. But yes, it was, it was, it was very, it was very strange. And the tour was saved by by a lady. They had to fly in from America who took over the entire tour, and they've mm. never, in their experience, known all of the, the the tour leaders to go down. So something very strange was happening, you know, uh, in the ethers, as it were. Wow, that is strange. And I also want to mention that. Uh, Kinthea is with us tonight in the background, and uh, if you want to jump in, Kinthea, feel free to do that. Because um, I really miss having you around on the show. <laughs> so, now, what were you expecting when, if you did make it to the King's Chamber, did you have expectations in regards to sending and receiving radio signals? Yes, I mean, that was uh, going to be, for me, uh, one of the highlights of, of the trip, not only just being in the King's Chamber, which is always a highlight by itself, and the Queen's Chamber and the Subterranean uh, Chamber as well, within the Great Pyramid of Giza, but to communicate through what we have been doing from the King's Chamber, you know, it, it would have been quite profound, I, I felt, uh, uh, quite a special uh, transmission because uh, David, as as we know, has been doing calculations regarding these transmissions, and the pyramid uh, encodement has featured greatly. So I felt that whatever the transmissions were telling us or guiding us in some way or some manner, it would have been greatly received from one of the most iconic places on the planet yeah this is it would have been an unprecedented experiment because nobody's ever done this right exactly it would have been something you know quite quite great uh, in its own worth and merit yeah and toward the end of the show um i'd like to talk about where you folks think we should we should go next and I, I have some input on that as well so um, now once the the mission <laughs> uh, the travel to I Egypt was canceled I guess Richard came up with a backup plan is that right that's right I mean I, I did become you know quite uh, quite ill uh, initially with with COVID and uh, I do have unfortunately a, a blood disorder which means I run a risk of having a stroke at any time let alone oh. without uh, uh, it's light in fact five uh, I suffer from so um, when I did become quite ill, I was hospitalized for a couple of days to maintain oxygen levels uh, within within my blood system. And again, quite um, strangely, Patricia Arwian was admitted to hospital and she too was on uh, was on oxygen. 
uh, as well. And what what's the chances of, of that occurring? Uh, but afterwards, I, I soon started to pick up uh, and, and regain uh, some degree of health back, you know, thank the gods of that. And and so yeah, so I, I I became quite quite a lot better. And then Richard uh, and I communicated and decided to carry on because it's a spring equinox. And like we've been discussing previously, uh, through the eightfold year of the ancient Celtic calendar, these are the days when the the veil, which is already thinning, uh, becomes its thinnest on these gateway portal days. Uh, so that was a, a date we decided to go ahead with. As Can I stop you there? Sure. Eightfold. I, I know about the two equinoxes and the two solstices. Are you saying there are four other dates that have significance in, you know, solar alignments and this kind of thing? Or yes, uh, to the Druid and Wiccan community. Uh, and indeed to the Neolithic going back 5,000 years, there were eight days of significance. We have the equinoxes of the spring and autumn. We have the solstices of the summer and winter. They are called the cross days. And they create uh, in the zodiac uh, a cross. And then in between those uh, days, you have the cross quarter days of May the 1st, Beltane, and then Lammas, the 1st of August, the start of the Celtic year, which is Samhain, which is November the 1st, and it's Eve, New Year's Eve is celebrated on Halloween, and uh, which was Christianized to Halloween. And then we have the 1st of February, which is Imbolc. And those eight days have always been celebrated. And even if you go back to 5,000 years ago in the Neolithic period of our long history on the British Isles, then you have monuments aligned to that sunrise or to that sunset. So they were very, very sacred days uh, for our ancestors old. My goodness. Yeah, see, I always imagine if I'm um, above the sun looking down on the solar system and I see the earth circling the sun, um, like the 12 o'clock position, the three o'clock, six o'clock, the nine o'clock position. Those are when you have these alignments. So there's actually eight altogether. That's, I, I didn't know that. I have to adjust my model now. <laughs> That's cool. We call it the wheel of the year, and it's uh, it's the the cycle of of time. And uh, to the to the ancients, there were very special days. For for example, a lot of people confuse uh, the summer solstice to Midsummer's Day. Uh, they're they're two separate events. Uh, the the summer solstice is roughly around the 21st of June, but three days later, the sun starts sink a little bit lower. That's Midsummer's Day. And Midsummer's Eve is a point where the sin is at its most thinnest. The veil is at its most thinnest, rather. And that's a very sacred day. So you, you have a few little days in between the eightfold year, but uh, they're very sacred times. Yeah, that's cool, because that all fits in with Richard's hyperdimensional physics, um, that the Rotation of the planets around the sun is affecting the torsion field, which affects all of us on Earth. And um, it's a very mechanical thing and scientific thing. It's not 
anything bizarre or, you know, astrology, there's really something to it. And so Richard's idea was to, for you to grit your teeth, get out of bed and go, and go down to Stonehenge on the equinox and save the, you know, salvage the experiment uh, since you wouldn't be going to Egypt he asked you to go to Stonehenge and send the signal. Is that right? That's right. So we decided that we would uh, go to Stonehenge, which is always a pleasure and a grace anyway. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful landscape. And I have been there, I don't know how many times, hundreds of times. But each time I go, it has its own signature, its own energy on a particular day. So it's always a, a pleasure. Although getting out of bed at four o'clock in the, in the morning when you're not feeling too good was <laughs> uh, something. Think. But uh, but yes, it was it was a, a very still day here in the UK in uh, in the wonderful kingdom of Wessex. So it was very still, and there was something quite. It felt quite a special day. It's a special day anyway, but there was something in the back telling me it's it's going to be a special day. So it was a pleasure uh, going to the Salisbury Plain. So you go down there. The sun's not up yet. It's dark. You're, you're there, are you by yourself? You have a companion um, and you send the signal, which is an encoded message. And the message is, it's nothing really mysterious. It's just encoded with um, common mathematics and tones and Morse code and things that we believe in ET civilization would recognize as an intelligent message. So you send our little encoded message out uh, from your radio on 432 megahertz channel. And then you record, you set the recorder to catch anything that might come back. And did you indeed receive a signal back? Well, I, start, I started off uh, by a place called Winterbourne Stoke Roundabout, which is an ancient burial ground. Is this uh, your for, items? Uh, no. Okay. No, no but that's, that's where uh, I, start, I started from, which is very uh, close to Stonehenge, but is, um, a ve- it's about 6,000-year-old long barrow there with very, very unique barrows. Uh, it's one of the finest in, in, in Wessex, actually. And Wessex is a mighty area. We call it Wessex because it, it spans a few counties, what you would call states. And it, it, it's, it's very ancient. It goes back to the uh, time of the Saxons, uh, King Alfred, uh, King Alfred the Great. And he got all the counties together, and we call it Wessex. Uh, and so uh, Wessex is the the motherland of all the sites of Stonehenge, Avebury, and Cranbourne Chase. You have the magnificent burials of the Bronze Age in in Wessex it, itself, and and that particular uh, burial ground has many diverse types of barrows. You have a long barrow, a disc barrow, a round barrow. It's magnificent. It was very dark there uh, to begin with. And then I moved on to Stonehenge uh, itself. And because it's the equinox, 
blocks, you have a lot of people around uh, as well. So there were people that were celebrating the, the equinox outside of Stonehenge itself as well. So it had a, a, a kind of merry feel about it. Yeah, there must have been some excitement in the air. And then you, you send the recording before the sun rises above the horizon. Is that right? That's right. And it, like I said, there was something very special about that day. It was still. Uh, you know, like on one of those mornings where we, we say in the UK, I'm sure you have the, saying, the same saying in the United States, you feel like a pin can drop. There's something very still uh, in, in the background. And uh, the weather was very still. And there was, there was hardly any wind. And bearing in mind all the other transmissions have been done in like gale force. Uh, very strange weather conditions. This was so, so clement and so, so still. It was, it was very beautiful. And, and when the sun came up, it looked magnificent. Oh, man. I, I wish we had some video or a picture. I'd love to see that. And I remember on February 4th when you went there, the weather was slashing rain and wind, and you're out there in this hail, and it's a bit crazy. Yes. And then you go on the equinox, and it's the exact opposite. Yeah, exactly. Both of them are these very sacred days. We started off on Imbolc proper, which is when the sun in the position of the astrological zodiac is exactly 15 degrees Aquarius. That's uh, Imbolc, dedicated to the goddess Breed over here, uh, quite often Christianized to Bridget. So that's uh, one of those portal days. And then the spring equinox follows that. And yes, the, the weather was much kinder. I can remember being at Stonehenge on Imbolc for Richard, and I actually couldn't feel my fingers holding the, <laughs> holding the radio and thinking, oh my goodness, uh, I want to, to get into uh, the warm. Yeah, crawl back into bed. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I want people to understand that this is an experiment that's never been done before. And the results are something that's never been heard before either, because I believe that what we are hearing in the reception that you recorded is the ringing of these stones and that the various stones ring at different frequencies. There's some that are ringing right, <clears throat> right around 432 Hertz. And then others ring higher. <clears throat> There's a couple of times during this one hour and 21 minute recording where it sounds like all of the stones are singing, but all throughout the, the one hour and 20 minutes, these tones come and go where you get this kind of thing where you can hear the stones ringing and to my knowledge, this has never been done before, and, and no one—I would say—no one on Earth today has ever heard the stones ringing in this way. So, when I heard your recording, Maria, I was like, "Whoa!" And in, in one of my items, in fact, I—I I put a picture of a an Indian singing bowl because it reminded me of someone 
taking that wooden handle and they run it around the edge of the singing bowl and the bowl vibrates and makes this wonderful sound. And it just sounded like Maria took this wooden handle and she's ringing it around Stonehenge, you know, right around the rocks. And it's, and it's vibrating just like the bowl and it's making this sound. And that's the impression I got when I, I first looked at your recording, but you didn't, you probably didn't hear that when you're recording. Were you listening to it as it's recording, or did you hear any of that during the experiment? That is, that's absolutely phenomenal what you're saying. I mean, this is a world first. I mean, most people that go to Stonehenge see the stones, they hear the stones. So that, that's, that, that's very, very remarkable. And I've only ever heard the stones at Avery ring once, which I'll describe later. But for me, uh, you know, uh, listening to, to the, the radio and the recordings, I didn't hear anything uh, ringing. The, the, one of the radios was kind of going quite wild at one point, And I was thinking, you know, what, what's going on there? And obviously, I wait to hear, you know, the experts like yourself and, and Thomas and, and David, you know, interpret that which has been recorded. So for me, I was thinking something is happening, but I, I had no idea that the stones, as you describe, were chiming, as it were. That's, that's incredible. Well, it makes me wonder, because you say there's a ley line that connects the Great Pyramid with Stonehenge. They lie on this... And I had to wonder if the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, as well as any other, um, I don't know if uh, the Kaaba is on that line or not, but I imagine any sacred site that is on that line was probably rigging like the Stonehenge was. Do you think there could be something to that? I think so because if we if we imagine that the the lays the lay network is a connective system from one site to another and energy travels very fast along a straight line which has been known since the ancient Chinese geomancy we recorded such uh, in in their writings so yes I think there's that that connection and you know we often think of this again we think of the physical connection between places like Stonehenge and and Egypt but now we're thinking about it in in terms of sound the the monuments almost like speaking to one another uh, transmitting sound to one another is uh, is another new dynamic that uh, brings the the monuments alive yeah and it fits in with my my research of arches national park and delicate arch where it appears to me that the the arch or the portal and the solar alignments and these acoustical amphitheaters that are tangent to the arch and a reflection pool. So you have all these elements. You've got sound. I'm calling it photonic acoustics, for lack of a better term, because it seems that the sound and the sun, you know, prana or whatever you want to call it, the the sound and the sun and the water. There's a movie called The Secret Life of Water. I, I want to see that movie because I, I think there's something with the water going on too at Delicate Arch. And all of these things together 
activated the arch. And, and where I'd like to go next is to have someone go to Delicate Arch on the summer solstice and send our encoded message into the arch and you know maybe sing too because i think people should sing into the arch nobody sings on these tourist videos you see on youtube they they go to the arches and you know they it's like you maria they go in the morning and they watch the sun come up and the arch and it's beautiful but nobody is singing and i we need some people to go to go to the arch and send our signal in there and and I think we'll get something back very profound. Yes, and, and I also feel that, you know, the long-skulled people that were, you know, worshipping and using and utilizing Stonehenge could hear on many different levels, uh, you know, more so than, than ourselves. And there, there's myths about Stonehenge. You're talking about singing, Jonathan. They're called the Perpetual Choirs. And it was recorded uh, in the Welsh Triads. That's a kind of ancient Celtic chronicle that there were people singing at Stonehenge 24 hours a day. They were the perpetual choirs. So I think oh, there is wow. something to do with, with singing. And a lot of the groups that I take in do love chanting and reflecting on those perpetual choirs that, uh, that was recorded and part of our ancient holy history. Wow, I've never heard of that. Let's pick up on that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Jonathan Womack, your host. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. going on with us now. You have vax or no vax. You have mandates or no mandates. You have uh, pharmacies who are not allowed to make a pres- prescriptions on substances that they don't, you know, <laughs> that big pharma doesn't want them to have anymore. Somebody's in control of something. There's going to be a time, follow the money, where you're going to say, hey, Something really inappropriate has gone on here. We're being controlled. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to have mandates and all these. It's another thing to shut people up who say, I would like to talk about this a little bit. No, you don't. You're not going to talk. And, and so we have, uh, you know, people like uh, Dr. Mercola being shut down. That is not us. That's not how we operate. People ought to at least be allowed to have an opinion and state the opinion and and have uh, say uh, I'd like you to know that a good immune system is going to help you so here are the things for a good immune system but I'm sorry you can't buy them anymore because we're not allowed to so something's going on so that my friend is going to be exposed that's another thing that you're seeing for a while and it won't last forever so it's there now but believe me it ain't going to stay because the light's going to be turned on 
just like the, the abuse of the, uh, that I've just talked about, of both women and kids for priests and all, it's here in an ugly way, and eventually it's going to be seen. Pride says there'll be revelations, or maybe even a movie about it. It's going to be the same thing that happened when we found out with tobacco, that they were, of course, addicting our children, and they had a cartoon, and they knew that it caused cancer. And you know what happened with that. We shut that, basically shut that down, and now we don't smoke anymore. Hi there, this is Lee Carroll. I want to tell you about the other side of the news. In these days where we're not really hearing much good news or perhaps even what's really happening, that's where the other side of the news is different. And in that, you're going to hear not only controversy, but you're going to hear great things. There are going to be joyful things, too. I just got done with one of the broadcasts, and I encourage you to take a listen with myself and Monica. But the other side of the news, that's what we need more of in these times. Okay, and we are back. I'm here with Maria Wheatley. We're discussing Stonehenge and its resonance. And I'd like to share a story that's related to what Maria said just before the break there, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, I've just had this uh, image of people singing into the arches in Arches Park out in Utah. And... I watch a lot of the tourist videos on YouTube and this one travel guy has a bunch of followers. He goes to the parks and films it and walks on. So he's at this one area that nobody ever goes. There's many areas that people just don't even go. They don't have names or anything. And I'm finding all these temples and it's, it's ridiculous. But um, so he's standing near this small arch and an arch is, um, identified by being at least one meter, any arch that's one meter or larger qualifies as an arch. And there's some 2,000 arches in Arches Park. So he comes up to this uh, three-foot-wide arch. It's small. It's just on the ground. And, you know, he can stand on top of it. So he kind of steps up on it, and he's talking. And then he stops, and he, he goes, what, what was that? And he goes, Echo, go. Did you guys hear that? I've never heard that before. What is that? And, you know, I'm sitting in my chair yelling to the screen, going, dude, sing, sing into it. Come on. Of course, you can't hear me. So he just kind of goes, wow, that is really strange. And he goes on and continues his, his travel video. But, um, that's the closest I've come to, to anyone actually realizing that these portals are special and if you sing or talking to them. So right before the break, Maria, you were talking about, can, can you just repeat what you were saying? Because um, I kind of swallowed hard when you said that these perpetual choirs, can, can you talk more about that? Yes, in the what's called the Welsh Triads, uh, they're kind of chronicles of ancient times that were um, recording of our, our past history. There were three perpetual choirs, 
One was in Stonehenge. One was at a place called Glastonbury, which is a very sacred place. And the other one was near Landwit Major in Wales. And it was I.O. McGonwy. He was um, translating these triads of Britain. And it was stated that in each of these three choirs, there were 24,000 saints. That is, there were 100 for every hour of the day and the night in rotation. Wow. Actually singing the praise and service of God without rest or intermission was oh recorded by McGonwy. And other authors picked up on that, like the, the late, and many would say the great John Michel. He wrote about the perpetual choirs. And then it created a geometry across the British Isles, which we call Albion. It's his ancient British name. And so across Albion, you had creating a massive tenfold geometry that was described by John Michel. And so in our mythology, you have all of the perpetual choirs, 24,000 saints or, or ancients singing the praise of the wonder of creation every hour of the day. So Stonehenge would have been a very a place where these songs, this praise was being perpetually said and linked into places like Glastonbury and, uh, and in Wales itself, which is the source of the blue stones from Stonehenge. So there's another, another link. So it was probably back then a wondrous time to hear Stonehenge aloud. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. I, yeah, I never knew that. And you just wonder if the stones were ringing like they are in your recording and if it was actually audible to the naked ear uh, i i wonder if that's even possible i don't know because um we're hearing i think we're hearing these ringing on your recording we're actually hearing it ring through the ether uh, as opposed to 3d time space but yeah i don't know um, they're definitely ringing, though. They are resonating like crazy, and uh, we'll get to that in a bit. So why don't uh, we bring in David Sarita next and, and get his take on some of this here. And David, as uh, our regular listeners know, he's a, a regular guest on the show, and um, he's been providing some very fascinating data these past few months. And his items are there on the show page. You can check them out. So, David, um, do you want to add anything to what Maria has said? Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I want to take people through kind of a visualization of the speed of sound and the speed of electromagnetic energy or radio frequencies. And the speed of sound in air so you imagine a stone is ringing and the speed of sound in the air would travel at 767 miles an hour however the speed of sound through the earth's um, crust and actually through granite is about 13,000 miles an hour and then the speed of sound in water is about um, 2,800 miles an hour for wait wait, wait so, no, hold it back back up a second. The, the speed of sound or, or Mach one is seven hundred and sixty seven miles per hour. Yeah. Miles per hour. And but when saying, sound moves through a medium 
but in fact, the more dense the medium gets, the faster it moves. So it moves at over 13,000 miles an hour through granite. And, and bluestone would be approximately the same. In fact, the more dense, like, like uh, tungsten, would be the fastest metal that sound moves through. That's why when you ring a metal bar, like an aluminum bar, the, the vibrations are, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've spent a lot of time on this, physically working with different metals and measuring the frequencies that it, that, that it acoustically gives off, but also calculating how long a piece of metal has to be to produce a, a particular frequency. And when you get into shorter pieces of solid material, the frequency gets higher, but it's the resistance to which impedes upon that incredibly fast frequency in, in a solid material. Actually, um, it imp the, the shorter it gets, the, the 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 resistance increases. So it's really an amazing science. So try to visualize why the stones are sitting in these open plains instead of you know on a rocky hillside and. And, and try imagine when you drop drops of water, you know, or drop pebbles into water, you get all these waves traveling away from, in, in a circular fashion or a holographic fashion, around where you drop the stone and in the water. Don't forget the underground that Maria talks about, these underground aquifers. I'm imagining the sound must go through the earth down into the underground waterways right well yeah the water moves about four four point three times as fast as through the air but then when you get into the for example a seismic wave is a sound wave because it's a pressure wave they're they're moving over thirteen thousand miles an hour so that means it goes halfway around the planet in one second but then an electromagnetic wave which, which generates the Tesla-Schumann resonance due to lightning strikes stimulating electromagnetic waves, they'll go around the planet over seven times a second, right? So, so that means that the speed of sound in, a, in the solid crust of the Earth, imagine when a seismic event occurs, all these erect stones from Karnak in France to all the megalithic sites to Stonehenge, they're vibrating and in response to that super fast wave moving through the Earth's crust. Yes. And then because they're piezoelectric, they'll give off a radio wave because, because they are semiconductive and conductive material stones. When you vibrate a crystal, it emits a radio frequency. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In reverse... If I stimulate the stone with a with a electromagnetic frequency, such as using the radio at a particular frequency, we're sending out these transmissions. Then the inverse happens, but it's much weaker. It's very very weak, but the inverse happens. That's that's reverberation, right? So sound has pressure. It has particle velocity. It has sound intensity, sound power, sound energy, sound energy density, and it has acoustic impedance and audio frequency. That's sound. But sound is, is a pressure wave, which means like in space where there's 
there's an extremely low density um, environment in space, you can't hear sound acoustically because there's not enough resistance to, to create pressure. Right. So, so the inverse of pressure. So what I'm trying to say is inversely, when you vibrate a stone, it emits an electromagnetic holographic wave. Now notice again, these stone structures are sitting on these flat planes and they're not, which means it's a very clean environment for them to radiate out a holographic um, picture of themselves at, at the speed of light because that's what piezoelectricity response would be. But then the sound wave that moves through the earth that can stimulate those stones is going almost 13,000 miles an hour. And then if the stones were sitting in an aqueous environment, then, then th that would be somewhere around 2,900 miles an hour. So, so sound is, is a bit of, it's, it's quite, there's all these differentials to its function, meaning there, that one wave is traveling in the air at 767 miles an hour, then your electromagnetic response is the speed of light, and then your pressure wave going through the through the Earth is is around 13,000 miles an hour. So, so what you're saying is that not only is the Earth covered in these ley lines where energy travels, flows, there are also all these stones and places are connected by sound. Well, exactly, because they're, they're, because if you ring one, you're going to ring all of them because they're, they're, they're sitting erect above the surface of the earth on these flat plains. And, and, and if they were buried into hillsides, they wouldn't produce the resonance that they would with these stones, you know, poking out above the surface of the earth. So I think that it's, it is like a giant musical apparatus in a way, frequency musical apparatus, and they, they are functioning and they're, and now I can understand how they're connected. Like I did an experiment. I went to Arches Park with my kids and my wife years ago, and we, we were measuring the, the circles in Chaco Canyon with a Leica laser. And I found a perfect, holy of holies and which is uh, let me go back let me go back because when you when we're talking about the great pyramids king's chamber and queen's chamber the king's chamber is 10 by 20 perfect cubits the, the perfect cubits that i've mentioned on the show earlier which is 20.601 inches per per cubit now that's the same measurement as moses's tabernacle which was which consisted of a rectangular tent 10 by 20 cubits which was called the holy place. And the holy of holies was 10 by 10 cubits, perfect cubits, which is the same measurement as the queen's chamber in the Great Pyramid, exactly. And we, we know from the, the studies in mathematics that the ancient, the God of the prophets was using the same perfect cubit that the Great Pyramid was built on. So that means Moses' holy of holies and his holy place were identical measurements to the Great Pyramid King and Queen's Chamber. Now, if that is universal, which it appears to be, uh, and, and remember, the Ark of the Covenant sits inside of the Holy of Holies, that cubic space, and that would be the Queen's Chamber, and the staff of Aaron 
lay in the Ark of the Covenant, which is inside of the Holy of Holies, and the measure the measurement of the staff the same as the Ark of the Covenant because it weighs in the covenant. So that's two and a half cubits. And the, and a wavelength coming off of a monopole antenna, two and a half cubits is times four would be 10 cubits, which would be the Holy of Holies because that's 10 cubits. And that's the queen's chamber. So do you think so I, the priests were in the king's chamber singing at different times of the year? Well, that's what I'm saying. See, the staff would, as a monopole antenna, would receive and transmit at a wavelength exactly the same dimensions as the queen's chamber, which is the holy of always in Moses' tabernacle. Now, at the time of Solomon, it all increases by two, which is an octave musically, right? An octave is times two. So in Solomon's temple, the holy of holies is 20 by 20 by 20 cubits, and the holy place is 20 by 40, right? So it's now bigger than what's in the Great Pyramid. But but it started at the same exact measurement which if i could if i could just sort of uh, interrupt hey guys yeah um you know just kind of you know extending off of what you've been talking about i mean i think the interesting thing that david's kind of talking about is that you know you're taking a look at these these specific dimensions the dimensions themselves end up creating these special ratios so when we're talking about the holographic sort of matrix we kind of get this sort of scalar effect. So when we're talking about, you know, what is so important of these geographical locations on this planet? Well, you know, our planet basically is a giant magnet. So you have a toroidal uh, energy field that's kind of coming out. And it seems as though the ancients that were building these, these, these sites sort of knew where some of this energy was kind of flowing out of this toroidal field in, in higher um, sort of quantities. It's very scalar. I mean, you can take this, you know, looking all the way down to like a, a proton, you know, a proton, you know, so small still has a very similar field. The uh, the energetic field that comes out of a human being has this toroidal structure. So, you know, basically the, you know, this, this, these, these uh, frequencies, these sacred frequencies are alluding to um, a special geometry that can have some type of an effect onto the holographic field or the ether or whatever you want to call it. So what's interesting is that, you know, in the, in the Gnostic texts and, and what David's talking about, you know, when you take a look at these ratios and these geometries, um, you know, whether they're doubled, you know, in an octave format or things like that, you know, nature seems to always kind of gravitate towards these fundamental um, mathematical ratios, whether you're at the smallest of smalls going all the way up to the largest of large, whether you're talking about a planet or a solar system or a galaxy or, or things like that. So, um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to sort of add that, that, you know, there is this kind of mathematical and, and geometric um, correlation um, been documented, and we see the physical remnants of that just by the sheer geographic positionings of some of these ancient sites that are located around the world. Yeah, indeed, the Stonehenge, uh, according to Maria's upcoming book, she talks about ratios that are encoded into Stonehenge. Can you touch on that for us, Maria? Maria, are you there? Yes, there- Yes, yes, sorry, uh, yes. So, yeah, there no, are lots of different... The like, ratios, the, hey, before she starts, ratio 
transcends frequency because ratio establishes harmony or disharmony. So I just want to put that in there. Good point. Yes. Maria. Yes, I mean, the, the, what the ancients were doing at places like uh, Stonehenge, I mean, we can have all of the logical understanding of an ancient site through measurements and through uh, encodements, but the experience is what I think the ancients were aiming at with the stones. And the blue stones, for example, are highly acoustic. If you go to their source, uh, and there are many different quarries that have now been known other than Khan Many. So we're going to go to the source of the blue stones at Stonehenge. Then you can play them like a musical instrument. So, uh, there's, and there's lots of videos on YouTube with that. They ring. You only have to tap uh, a blue stone, which is spotted dolerite or ry rhyolite, uh, at places like uh, Rossafellin in Wales. Then, then you can get these amazing sounds back just literally by tapping them like a drum. So when you went through the original uh, entrance to Stonehenge and you enter the blue stone phase, we can envision that the ancients were allowing them to ring. I have a piece of blue stone in my, in my home, a very large piece of blue stone that was actually worked by ancient man and made flat. Uh, 6,000 years ago. You only have to tap that slightly and it rings this amazing sound. And when you're stood for the experience by a bluestone when it's ringing, it vibrates through your whole being in a cleansing manner. That's incredible. See, when you talk about ringing a stone, that's what piezoelectricity is. See, when you, it's a pressure wave. Piezo means pressure. And when you, when you, apply pressure to a crystal which a stone is it will emit a very weak radio frequency wave so you're not only producing a sound wave you're also producing an electromagnetic wave that's why i was trying to tell you the different velocities of all these different waves and then the inverse is you can hit a stone with an electromagnetic wave and the reverse function will happen and so they're they're very very sensitive instruments and if they're if the proportions are correct like for example let's say let's say we disagree in the ark of the covenant which sits in the middle of the holy of holies which cubit to use because everybody has different cubits it actually doesn't matter because your ratio remains the same so if i use a 16 inch cubit or an 18 inch cubit or a 20.601 inch cubit um, and the arc is one and a half by one and a half by two and a half it doesn't matter the unit of measure the ratio is one to 1.6666666 and and that remains the same regardless of the measure and it's it's the same in a way with proportion of frequencies if your proportion is correct it's still going to sound harmonic. I've actually tested this with, with tone generators. You can come up with any fictitious number for tone number one, and as long as tone number two and three are proper proportion, it's all going to sound wonderful. It's really amazing how that works. Now, when we were in Chaco Canyon and went to the Arches Park, my family and we pitched our tent right you know in the in the campground right where some of the most beautiful arches are 
we, I took a string and I, made, I used a Leica laser. I did this exact. And my kids and I set a circle of stones in a pulley of holies. And I pitched my tent right in it. And I meditated in my tent that night. And this was such a psychedelic experience. I mean, this is fully psychedelic and visual, but I'm not using any plants or anything like that. I'm just meditating. I was able to travel through the arch. And on the other side, I went to actual paradise. It was paradise earth. I was in a whole other world. There was all these beautiful colors everywhere, tremendous bliss and ecstasy. And then I would come back to our side. And then it would be the the same boring earth that we have now in the same world government leaders. Then I would go to the other side of the arch and I was in this paradise earth place. And I saw this full psychedelic. It was not um, nothing in my mind. There's no way to describe what it was. So like. you entered the multiverse. Basically. It's like I entered the parallel higher. I mean, I know a woman who did uh, this plant, this plant-based medicine called Iboga. And she described something very similar where this rectangle appeared in front of her and her, her niece had died and she went to the other side and it was earth, but it was paradise. It was, it was a way better world than what's on this side of, of the reality. So that, you know, that happened to me in Arches Park and, and it kept, I, I could go forward and backward in, in this full psychedelic vision as if somebody gave me the best plant medicine on earth but they didn't all i did all i did is put the circle i made a stone circle with my kids and i camped in the middle of it now i've also done on my own property i've buried magnets like 14 magnets in a perfect holy of holies under my grass and amazing things have happened since i've done that since i created a perfect Circles. So I think these circles, now tell me what you know about this, Maria. I'd really like to know, did they build these stone structures on top of ancient, ancient crop circles that appeared from the other dimensional universe? The same thing I'm talking about that happened to me in Arches Park. Did, did they see the imprint on the ground first and then put the stones there? Is there any evidence of well, that? Hold- Hold that thought, and when we come back, Maria, you can pick up on that. Uh, We're going to go take a break. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. I'm your host tonight, Jonathan Womack. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
outside of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. That is the wonderful, talented Ty Tabor with the song Coma from the album Balanced. And he plays all the instruments. And uh, yeah, I love that guy. All right, so we're here talking with Thomas Mathers, David Sarita, and Maria Wheatley. And David, would you repeat your question to Maria for us? Yeah, I, I've had this theory for years that, in fact, there was a documentary I saw recently about the stone circles where using aerial drones with special cameras, they could see these imprints under the soil that that they remind me of crop circle imprints. And I'm I'm wondering if there's any stories that go back to the ancient world where the crop circle would appear first as kind of like a template, a blueprint, where they would later place the stones. And one of the ways they could get the stones to, you know, if if it's as old as we think it is, if you had enough ice and you drilled or you cut a hole in the ice, you could you could slide the stones on the ice and tip them into the ice pit holes that aligned with the imprint holes. And then when the ice thawed, you know, they would be sitting in their holes. I mean... It'd be easier to drag stones across ice than it would be grass using logs. I mean, there may have been a much more fantastic method. So there'd be two questions. One, 
do you think there was a template that appeared in the grass first, like a crop circle? And two, what are the theories about how the stones were actually set in place? Well, the ice theory has been ruled out uh, mm -hmm. many years ago, mainly to geological understanding that the, the, the climate in England uh, during the Neolithic was not like it is now. We had climate change. So, so move, there was no ice. There would have been, mm -hmm. at the very worst in winter, just a very big slush. But that's been a popular idea. As for the crop circles, what you sometimes see beneath the stone circles is what's called a parch mark. And in archaeology, that's where something has been before. So before the stone circles, you had timber monuments, and they leave a parch mark. It was Terence Meaden that purported about the crop circles were the place where the stone circles went. But I, I disagree with that, because when you look to what's beneath the ground, and like Jonathan said earlier, you have yin aquifers of water. This isn't groundwater. This is water that's been generated deep within the earth itself. Then you have astronomical sight lines at Stonehenge, where you have the rising sun is at an angle to the uh, major moon set, for example. So it's on a unique astronomical sight line. And most of the uh, crop circles in this area are, are indeed, many say now, are purported to be by teams, uh, which uh, they put out before they put the design down. There are some genuine ones, but uh, it's a big industry uh, over here. So I think the, the stone circles are there because of astronomical sight lines and for deep aquifers and uh, other genetic uh, energies besides. So these perpetual singers from back in the day do you think their song would have been orchestrated with a specific uh, frequency in mind? Like they want the, the song they're singing is engineered to, uh, you know, they, they want a certain outcome. They're looking for a certain resonance. So they're, they sing in the key of A or, or whatever. Do you, you know what I'm trying to say? Yes, I mean, at Stonehenge, it's unique because it's on open plain. Not all stone circles are on open plain. Avery Henge, for example, is in the Kennet Valley on low-lying uh, land. But at a place like Stonehenge, uh, Reading University have done the most acoustic tests there, for instance. And whatever is said on the inside of Stonehenge cannot be heard on the outside despite the gaps uh, in, in the stones. Uh, and they've located lots of different uh, frequencies by recording on what they call pink pink noise. So it is an acoustic uh, attempt. And like I say, you can ring the blue stones uh, as well. And the blue stones are very human height, whereas the sarsen stones are gigantic uh, in, in height. Yeah, one of the images I have, one of my items is shows uh, it's a pitch curve. And the most activity seems to be right at the 40, 432 megahertz, which I believe is what you were broadcasting on. That's the frequency you were broadcasting on. So I thought that was interesting that most of the ringing we hear throughout that one hour and 20 minutes, most of it is coming from that 432 frequency, which I think is pretty cool. So it tells me that 
if they were singing, you know, if you imagine the Gregorian chants, let's say, <laughs> oh, yeah, and that would create a specific response from the stone um, in regards to what they were looking for on that particular day. And then on another day, maybe the solstice, they would sing this other song. And then on the winter solstice, they would sing this song. That's kind of the impression I got. Does that sound right? Well, whereas in Eastern traditions, they uh, often chant the arm, to, to the Celt, it's the Arwen. And so the, the Arwen is, is chanted at a quite a low sound, uh, and it means inspiration. It, it's actually spelled A-W-E-N, but it's pronounced Arwen. Uh, so a, a lot of uh, the, the ancient traditions were probably surrounded by this world, word. And when you, you resonate the, the Arwen, uh, in a chant, it does uh, generate a lot of energy. Well, especially if you tune it so that when you're doing that, you can actually feel the sensation of it sort of vibrating um, either the third eye or, um, you know, definitely when I'm sort of doing those types of meditations, you know, I'll sort of feel those kinds of uh, sounds will will definitely sort of vibrate like the third eye or like the crown chakra. Um, but you can kind of sort of find, um, you know, that sort of resonance in your own body. And, and they do tend to be kind of around those tones that you hear people, you know, chanting. So, you know, lots of different cultures, you know, seem to kind of gravitate towards that type of thing. Um, you know, and definitely if you take a look at uh, things like uh, Hemisync from like the Monroe Institute, um, that type of vibration when you're doing, you know, kind of getting into these, into the deeper levels of a meditative state are kind of, you know, based off of those types of like a, you know, a, a body resonance and a body uh, harmonic. Thomas, do you want to go through your items? Yeah, sure. So, that. yeah, for sure. Huh. Um, you know, so this, uh, let me just kind of pull them up so we can kind of follow along. Um, and to get there for our listeners, in case you don't know, just go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner. That takes you to our show page. And then there are fast links to Thomas and, and the other guests. So uh, your item number one. Yeah. So, so overall, um, I mean, uh, so this, uh, basically this analysis compared to the last one, um, was was kind of interesting because again, um, and this is something that you and I spoke about, Jonathan. Um, you know that there seems to be sort of a palette. Um, you know, as you kind of listen to these recordings, um, you're kind of starting to familiarize yourself with different um, kind of sounds that are that are sort of featured into it. Um, so over the course of the last. Um, I guess a couple of radio shows where we've been featuring some of the uh, playing some of the audio from the recordings um, you can hear that I mean first and foremost it's very energetic um, this has got more complexity than a standard sort of static um, but what's interesting is that with these longer recordings um, you know which we had really really good success with Maria's last recording um, at Stonehenge where we identified a little bit of a voice um, and some other really interesting tonal frequencies that came through um, that definitely seemed to be different than what you would sort of um, 
think about, you know, either a natural sort of radio bounce or, you know, a natural um, uh, harmonic distortion being picked up from the, the radios themselves. Um, yeah. So... <clears throat> Uh, so I went through this uh, last night, and again for the listeners, um, basically the process um, that Jonathan and I have been sort of you know, going through with this has been to look at the frequencies through uh, some type of a visualization, uh, through a spectral analyzer, um, and then we've been processing the sounds through different types of algorithms, looking for Morse code. Um, but really the most success has really been just to be patient and to actually just listen to the, the entirety of the recordings um, because that's where you, these things really kind of start to, to stand out. And that's kind of what happened last night uh, when I was going through Maria's last recording. Um, so if we play the baseline example number one, this is just to kind of give you a sense as to what they generally you're kind of listening to. Um, this if you kind of skim through the, I mean, I think the last recording, um, this one was about 75 or 80 minutes long that Maria was able to record. Um, so you'll, you'll get periods of time where it's really just kind of doing this. Um, and then there's some other things that as we go through this, we'll, we'll sort of highlight. And I'm sure Jonathan, this is kind of the same thing that you've, you've been able to find. Jonathan and I have been, been kind of picking out sort of the similar oddities. We're both sort of picking out sort of similar, similar types of things. So this, this first item, number one is, is basically just to give the listeners, uh, an example of like a, a baseline reference of what the, the substance is. Now, one thing that I will put, uh, sort of preface to this is that, uh, where Maria was doing these recordings was a little bit sort of further outwards. So, so when she did the recording, which was the first attempt in Stonehenge where she was within the circle, the intensity was just so great that it was very chaotic and it really was just too hot of a, of a signal for us to really be able to kind of dig in and try to identify if there was anything sort of poking through. Um, because again, this is kind of like a call response type of thing. So we, um, the, the substance of the message that's gone out, um, is basically a series of different, uh, frequency tones, um, that were done. And what we've done is the specific, uh, frequency of these tones are sort of done in ratios that represent important mathematical, uh, constants, uh, ratios, uh, the golden ratio, pi, those kinds of things. So we've condensed down a bunch of very important mathematical ratios and some other important things like, for example, uh, the frequency uh, sweep of the human uh, human hearing, you know, so going from like a 20 hertz up to 20,000 hertz. And so we've constructed a nice tidy, I believe the last one um, is about maybe a minute and a half or two minutes, but we've sort of condensed quite a bit of information and been able to kind of maximize the use of that bandwidth to kind of put some interesting stuff out there. So it's kind of a call and response type of thing. So, so if you go and play number one, what you'll, what you'll hear, this is sort of, you know, what we tend to like, what we have been picking up in these, in these transmissions. Um, but the nice thing is, is that where she was located for the last one, where we got some amazing, uh, amazing finds from, and where she did this one as well, I believe, um, is a little bit further out. So the intensity is not so great that it's masking any of this interesting other stuff that are 
let's just call them oddities right now, and that we're trying to find some sort of order or logic or, or things to them. And there is definitely, um, you know, as we kind of do this live, <laughs> um, there's some interesting numbers that popped up, and I'm hoping that maybe as we kind of go through this, David, some of these numbers maybe will kind of resonate with, with David. So let's start off with the baseline example, and then we'll kind of go through and I'll explain to them. Um, and this, again, kind of stretches from the very beginning of a recording because there were some interesting things right off the bat and then like all the way until almost the end of the 80 minute recording. So. Well, number one, your item number one is an image, right? Oh, sorry. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the SoundCloud link that has all of the different, uh, the, yeah. the, the different sort of files. The, the image that I sent was basically just um, for people to see what the spectral, at least the, the spectrum analyzer that I'm using um, for, for how I'm looking for these little spikes um, you know, where we're seeing these kind of these tonal frequencies kind of coming in that are different than what else is there. So it's like a, mm. a, a definite sort of spike and these spikes are happening at different places. And this is where in Maria's previous recordings, we got pi. It was like 99% close to the value of pi and some other interesting sort of uh, numeric uh, frequency values. Um, but again, so maybe if you can go to the SoundCloud link and start off with oh, the, the baseline example. Yeah, here we go. This is the yep. baseline example. Are you hearing something? Hello? Yeah, we hear it. Oh, I can't. I, I hear it. You can't hear it? No. No, we can't hear it. All right, is anybody else hearing it? Okay, I'm going to pause No, that. I can't hear it. You guys aren't hearing no. this. Okay. Um, I, should I, I think, Keith, it. you probably have to play it from your end. Okay. This is uh, item two. I, yeah, item two and number baseline. one, yeah, the baseline example. Sorry. I got to cue it. Oh, yeah. So we'll have to, we'll have to kind of pause it in between because it'll just cycle through and play the whole thing. Okay. What's the so, one we're listening to so, right now? Yeah, so that was it, it went into the next one and so so what we'll have to do is I guess when you play it when you sort of see um the end of it you can just kind of press pause and it it it'll, it'll so yeah, so the first one the first one basically that kind of like almost helicopter sound <clears throat> seems to be this this kind of recurring sort of sound that we're picking up um and that's kind of generally what you're kind of hearing for most of most of the recording. Um, it seems to kind of wave in and out in intensity. There doesn't seem to be any kind of logic or any kind of like sort of format to it. Um, it's pretty organic. Um, you know, sometimes it will just suddenly come in a lot louder and other times it just kind of slowly fades out. And then there's all sorts of interesting stuff <clears throat> that seems to, I mean, by all sorts. I mean, I think in general, you know, off of this recording, I was able to identify so I guess 10 um, interesting 
frequencies that stood out as kind of being like this doesn't sort of go along with what I was was expecting. So the number two uh, was happened at one minute and ten seconds. Okay, you can press pause now. Yeah, so maybe we'll play that one again. I don't know if Keith, you're able to put uh, the volume up a little bit, but as you can hear, there's a frequency sweep that kind of comes in. It almost has like a whining effect to it. Now, the interesting thing is, is that this is not, we're not picking up any other, any other sounds like this. I mean, we haven't in any of like hours, literally at this point, yes. of recordings have not sort of. Sorry. Just yes. the equinox. Exactly. So I think um, if, if Keith, if you can play number two again, just to sort of, so that you can kind of hear this, it's, it's, yeah. Okay, now if you press pause. Now, the interesting thing with that is those are two unique uh, tones. So those, fre the, those, those frequencies are not just a, a static frequency. So the, the, the sound is kind of changing. It's got a musical kind of effect to it. And those would represent kind of two sort of tonal sweeps. And there is no sound like that in anything that we were sending out. So it, that was, and I mean, that happened like a minute into the recording. I was, you know... It was very, very interesting. And there's when I heard on. that, I was taken aback too. Yeah, I'm sure you found that one as well. I mean, it was pretty. It hard. sounds metallic. It sounds it's, like a metallic sheen. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll move on to number three. So, at the three-minute mark, was the first frequency spike. So we have been getting. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Please. Yeah, you can press pause. So as you can hear, like out of nowhere, that sort of frequency comes in. Now, I mean, I think maybe a lot of people would be like, okay, well, you know, that's really not that interesting. It just kind of sounds like, you know, some distortion or something like a, you know, some type of feedback. But the thing is, is that it's a very definite frequency that it's coming in and it doesn't repeat itself. It doesn't happen again in hours of recording. So the, the value of that one came in at 3.52 kilohertz or 3,520 hertz. So I don't know if there's anything interesting about that number, David, offhand. Can we lose David? David? I must have stepped away. Oh yeah, yeah I'm sorry, my microphone was muted. Um, it's close to a very interesting number. I wonder how exact your your, your frequency analysis of that is. I mean, if it was, if like put it this way, like I think there might be, you know, after the two, um, you know, the three point five definitely. Uh, the two, I mean, it could be two one, two three, two four. I mean, I, I can't. My my frequency analyzer doesn't go into three decimals. Three thousand five hundred and twenty uh, is what you're saying is the base number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I'd have to look at it. I yeah, mean, so I, I'm going to give you these. I'm going to give you these numbers, but that's why. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm just. I mean, if something just kind of pops out, I mean, I think it's worth discussing. There's some other interesting ones that we're coming into that are actual chords and other um, two tone, which were the super interesting ones to me because the two tone frequencies are what we sent out. So it was that format. Uh, the format that we sent out was like, for example, pi was one frequency and then another frequency. And then the response doubled that time, which was the value of pi converted over to a frequency. So that was the format one, two with a, with a result. So the interesting thing is, is that we've got a couple of these two tones that come a little bit later on. And, you know, I definitely think that, you know, for the next attempt that I would like to recreate those tones, send them back out and then send the response with us having doing the division. But um, if you go over to Keith, uh, if we go over to item for uh, the fourth sound. So this happened at the seven minute mark. And this was the first time that we kind of picked up almost like a tonal chord. So this means. Okay. And you can play it again. It's very short when it comes in, but maybe just play it one more time and I'll, I'll answer. Uh, sorry, yeah, Keith, that was actually number five. If you can go back and play number four, please. Uh, that was the 2.4 one that I just played, I thought. It went to five? Uh, yeah. I, okay. That was number five. Was number four. Yep. And that's it. So you, yeah, you can press pause. It's very, very fast. Some of these recordings are quite uh, short um, because these little oddities kind of just kind of, you know, come in and, you know, that's what we're sort of doing is, you know, we're listening to it. We're pulling these kind of areas that have these sort of oddities and then we're kind of doing a deeper dive. So the interesting thing with that one, it was kind of one of the first tonal chords. It had a bit of a similar um, uh, sort of texture. Uh, and overall quality as the frequency sweep and whine, which has been a different type of sound that we've picked up from any of the other previous recordings. Um, but the the frequencies for that chord were 1.85 kilohertz or 1850 hertz and uh, 2.43 kilohertz or 2430 hertz. So, and that was together played a, as as a chord, which I thought was quite interesting. So, um, again, those numbers for me, and the, the numbers are not necessarily, you know, the my my strong point, you know, or the forte. But um, these are again, you know, it's all stuff that people can go and listen to. Um, it's a it's a SoundCloud link, and um, you know, there's enough information here that people can go back and listen to it and. If they, if anybody has any, uh, you know, additional insight, by all means, get in touch with the, uh, with the show, and and you know, we're trying to open source this. I mean, you know, we're doing doing what we can in this kind of analysis. But if any of these numbers are kind of, you know, ringing a bell or sort of bringing something up, by all means, you know, anybody out there, um, sort of come back to us with any other suggestions. So we'll move over to number five, which we kind of, we played before. This was again, just another frequency kind of spike that hit, um, because this is the nine minute 1.92. Yeah, so this happened. Yeah. So this happened at nine minute. It's a very short one. So I've repeated it three times. Um, so that's why you're going to hear it three times. I've repeated that three times just so that you can kind of 
focus your ears attention to it and then kind of hear what that That was actually number six. If we can go back to number five. So you can hear in the back. So you can hear in the I back. I call that the bird whistle on on my items. Yeah. So like in the in the so oh so you picked that one up as well, Jonathan. That's yeah, that's I picked great. up like forty on yeah. my notes. <laughs> Um, so then if we move over to number six, these were the, the ones that I've highlighted were the ones that I felt like really kind of stood out the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we, if we move over to number six, yeah, we're going to um, break in about 30 oh. seconds. So, okay. Oh yeah. Let's, uh, let's go to break then. You're listening to the other side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. I'm your host, Jonathan Womack. We will be back shortly. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. 
Welcome back to the other side of midnight. We're speaking with Maria Wheatley, David Sarita, and Thomas Mathers. And Thomas is taking us through some of his items and oddities. So please continue, Thomas. Okay, so we'll pick it up um, again. Um, uh, so we'll go over to number six. So I found we're jumping now from the nine-minute mark to 41 minutes. Um, between nine minutes and 41, I didn't find there to be anything that kind of really stood out super in a super potent way. Um, and this just kind of goes to show that, you know, it's not like these things are happening very often. So, I mean, if you really take a look at how much uh, of what we're highlighting is, it's probably a total of maybe 15, 20 seconds over the course of like, you know, 80, 80 plus minutes of, of recording. So the interesting thing with this one was it was a two-tone, which again is kind of like the, the call and response that we've been doing with the transmissions. Um, so if Keith, you want to play number six, this is happening at the 41 minute and 30 second mark, and it's a two-tone frequency. Give me one second. Yeah, no problem. Coming at you. I think this is right. I don't think that was number five, was yeah. it? Yeah, number six. Yeah, that was it, okay. number six. Okay. For some reason it was partially paid. started in the middle yeah it sounded like it started halfway through because uh, yeah. that was the second that that what we were listening to was the 2030 Hertz okay you want me let's to hear it again Keith okay yeah it's the sound So again, like <clears throat> the interesting thing here is that that's similar to the type of tone that we're sending out. The thing is, is that like these sounds are playing for much longer than what is actually in the recording, the, like the recording that we're sending out. And what Those, we were hearing there that you want people to notice was the. Exactly. The two, yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we're going from uh, 871 hertz and then it goes, jumps up to 2,030 hertz. So again, I think what we, I'd like to do is that for the next transmission, we're gonna do exactly that. We're gonna concentrate on 871, and then we're gonna do 2030, and then what we'll do is we'll do the division, and we'll send out what the answer to that is, because that's what we've been sending out. So that's what's really strange about this, because the thing is, is that we've been sending out like basically three tone uh, uh, like uh, transmissions. So it'll go one tone for like two seconds or four seconds, and then another tone for two seconds or four seconds. And then for double that time, so for about eight seconds, you would have the response. So the thing is, is that there's only two tones here. I mean, if this was part of the original transmission, which it's not, then there would have been a third a third value there. 
which there isn't. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really interesting. So, and again, this was kind of, I believe, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time that we've picked up a, basically a sequence like this, like a very specific two-tone kind of callback, basically. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to number seven, I mean, you know, not to just kind of be dismiss, dismissing this because it's certainly strange to me. I mean, and this happened at, you know, 41 minutes and 30 seconds into the recording. It's so significant. Just to, it yeah. is significant. So um, then we kind of fast forward to the 64-minute mark, approximately 64 minute, uh, minutes and 16 seconds into Marie's recording. We get another two-tone. we can pause that that is unmistakable like i mean that sounds like a whistle like yeah we're going from 3.02 kilohertz or 3020 hertz to 3.67 kilohertz or 3670 hertz you know and these values that i'm giving i would say are probably accurate to about 99 you know 99 percent plus um again because we're not looking at a, a third decimal you know, they might be a little bit off, but generally, so these are the kinds of numbers. So again, at no point did we send that out. We didn't send and that out. These are all common frequencies that we, we hear every day in, in music and, and dialogue and things like this. Yeah. These so, are, I mean, like, you know, anywhere, is, you know, anywhere below kind of your, like, I would say like six, seven, eight thousand hertz, um, that's getting pretty high up there anyways. But this is kind of really within within kind of the hearing that we have. I mean, our, our frequency range, like the, the technical human frequency range is 20 hertz, which is very low, which is a bass sound, up to 20,000 hertz, which, um, you know, is something that children um, can definitely hear. But as dogs. you age, well, <laughs> dogs can actually hear it beyond. Um, tw- uh, it's, it's even above, higher than that. I think it's a bit like 23 or 24,000. Mm. That's why dog whistles can't be heard. But as your ears age, and this is just the same for everybody, um, you do kind of lose that ability to hear the higher frequencies. So, you know, older people will have a hard time hearing stuff that's, you know, above 18,000. I mean, those are high frequencies. So these are like, I mean, this is unmistakable. And I mean, again, it's kind of coming out, you know, and this is where, uh, Jonathan, where I, I, we heard the, the almost ping pong kind of sound coming back in, you know, mm-hmm. which we heard a lot in the last recording. This one, it didn't really start until kind of the 60-minute mark with this kind of like, you know, like ping pong sort of popping sound. And I notice when the, the tones come in like that, it affects the surrounding tones, like yes. the surrounding textures. Correct. Yeah. But I mean, these are very significant. This is a sine wave. Um, I, would, I would say 90% it's a sine wave. Um, just based off of listening to it, which is what we've been sending out. So, um, it, uh, you know, sound has will oscillate in different kind of ways, and and most sounds that you hear kind can be recreated as a combination of your sort of fundamental um, sound vibration oscillation shapes. So, you know, your common shapes would be like a sawtooth which would look kind of like the edge of like a saw. So like a triangular up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's the, the, the type of vibration that is oscillating to generate an audible tone. A sine wave, which is kind of, you know, sort of the most organic, 
is you know a it's it's a very kind of circular it's it's a curved line um and that's why i chose to send out sine waves in the in the transmission that we put out um you also have square waves which is another type of kind of primitive if you want to call it um you know oscillation shape um and then you know there's random there's like a noise there's different ones but you know the sine wave i would say this is what we're hearing back is a sine wave so the question is what or who is obviously had listened to a sine wave and then sends a sine wave back because the radios are not going to generate a sine wave in a specific frequency like this um and and if we were picking up some type of like a distortion uh, like a harmonic distortion it wouldn't be the it this really does not sound like what like a harmonic distortion would kind of sound like there's there's a little bit too much intent so like that's why i think that the numbers are important for us to kind of take a look at and this was the second there was uh so i mean we had the tonal chord at seven minutes and then we had the two-tone at the 64 minutes and then this uh or sorry the uh, two-tone at 41 minutes and then another two-tone at 64 minutes and then so that was it for the two tones um i'd, I'd we, like to stop you there james uh and I want to check in with Maria and Dave because I'm wondering, Maria, if what James has been saying, um, if that sparks any thoughts in you, like, are we hearing, when you hear these tones, do you feel like you're hearing the blue stone and then this tone, this is the lintel stone? Do you hear different stones ringing? Is, it, is that what it sounds like to you? Well, certainly it's very fascinating, the analysis of both yourself and, uh, and Thomas. And I, I feel that like when we go back to saying the days that we, uh, I did this transmission, I really do, I did feel the stillness there. I, I think the most powerful stones at Stonehenge are probably the, the trilithons themselves. They were put up first, and then the circle came afterwards. And when, when you walk into the, the center of Stonehenge, that's when you feel something very, very powerful. And in, in between that, you have the blue stones. So my sense, my feeling, uh, and my subjective uh, sense is that it's the, the trilithons. They are oh. mighty, and they are powerful. Because I think what's so again, so what we're doing is we're we're sending out um, sine waves over 432 megahertz. So that 432 megahertz is kind of geometrically kind of connected to what we are guessing is the 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 geometric structure of the 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 holographic ether. Okay, and so our ideas from the very beginning before you even went out to Stonehenge Maria was this idea that sacred sites, but, you know, uh, Stonehenge in particular, were kind of like natural signal amplifiers, which was the rationale that we don't need a super high powered, uh, um, you know, antenna uh, or some type of a device to put a really powerful signal out. You know, what we're doing is, you know, I think the combination of the intent 
um, and the specific geometries connected to the frequencies that we're sending these out on um, would be amplified in these natural amplifiers and putting a signal out. And because we are kind of putting almost questions or, you know, doing like a call response type of action, I mean, this is, we're getting responses back. And what we're trying to do is basically, you know, uh, find some type of logic behind it. But they, there seems to be an increasing amount of logic coming back in these responses. I mean, we were definitely... Um, I think all taken aback with the voice um, that I was able to find deep, deep, deep into this from the last recording. Um, but I think some of these numbers are actually kind of a little bit crazier because this this completely relates to what we're sending out. So it's kind of like what you would expect to be getting back in other than you know, to be, you know, a little hyperbolic, like, yeah. you know, somebody coming, coming back and saying, Oh, Hey, I'm, I'm here and I'm hearing what you're doing. Obviously we would love to have that, but I mean, we don't know if the messages are being sent out over space, a dimensional shift, a time shift. I mean, who knows, but there yeah. is substance and there's logic coming back in these responses. And definitely the, as we kind of go through the remainder of the items, you know, the, the two last items, as far as I'm concerned, completely, um, you know, did it, did it for me. So if we, we move along. Before we go there, let me mention too about, um, you know, Richard and I had talked about back in December, how um, we believe that Mars is an, I call it rock tech. And the rock is all laced with these materials that allow it to think and in an AI type of, uh, structure. So when you zoom out from the planet and look at it as a whole, it's it's a smart planet. And it could be the same way. Maybe the ancients were setting the uh, Earth up to be this type of rock tech AI. And that could be, I mean, it could be aliens that we're getting this from, or it could be and a smart planet. But I think, but here's the, but here's the thing is that these, these special, these special positions on the planet geometrically, um, you know, and Mars is the same thing. You can take a look at Saturn and the hexa, uh, hexagonal pull North on, pole. on, yeah, on, on Saturn. Um, you know, we, we can see astronomically at scale um, that this, this pattern, this energy pattern, um, seems to be co- there's cohesiveness behind it. So whether you're talking about something very small, going all the way to something very big and even bigger, right? So this is this is why I think you know, and, and we're kind of existing at an interesting time, um, you know, as humans in, in this civilization, because I feel that we're sort of crossing this moment where actual physics are very quickly starting to kind of cross over to this sort of more metaphysics. So if we really, you know, people that have looked at, you know, this kind of idea of non-local, uh, non-locality, 
and um, you know, or 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 why would remote viewing work? Well, remote viewing would work if the matrix that we're all basically consisting of is all connected like a spider web together, right? So, if we understand what the geometry of what that that hyperdimensional spider web is like, um, no different than when a fly lands onto a spider web and sort of vibrates the the, the spider web, and the spider being attuned to it. What we're trying to do is basically become attuned to the hyperdimensional um, uh, web construct of our reality and, and space in the universe. And, and they and that, overlap there at Stonehenge. Exactly. And the thing is, is that so, so Stonehenge being an amplifier of Earth's energy. Right. So like Stonehenge, that particular position is important in relation to Earth's overall energetic field and the toroidal energy kind of field. So we're tapping into that to try to use it to amplify the message going out. And we're trying to put in terms of what the substance of the message is, that we have some type of rudimentary understanding of what, you know, these numbers or, or these kind of ratios, for, for example, like, you know, highlighting uh, the, the, the golden ratio. Well, the golden ratio in our reality, in this universe, is massively important because you see in self-assembling systems, whether it's just molecules or, or things like that, how plants grow, how cells grow, everything sort of gravitates towards that ratio. It's, it, the, the, the golden ratio is the ratio of life itself, which you know is at least related, I think, to our dimension and our universe. So and another aspect would be the, the water cymatics. So these tones, I'm wondering exactly. if they're making exactly. patterns like spirograph <laughs> patterns in the water exactly. in the ground. Exactly. So when we're sending something out at 432,000 uh, hertz, right? Well, it's vibrating just like that special frequency does in a cymatic. So what we're doing is basically trying to create, we're trying to tap into like a hyperdimensional, like vibrational cymatic idea. And this is what we're sending out and that's where we're listening. And I mean, the interesting thing is, is that, I mean, obviously Maria being in a, in a natural, natural amplifying uh, location, that's going to work both sending something out and receiving. So I think, you know, taking a step back, you know, at a sort of more macro level of what we've been trying to do with these experiments is now we're really kind of seeing the importance of being somewhat geographically located to a natural amplifier, a natural antenna. And that's why we can use a handheld ham radio and be able to be sending these messages out. The other thing is, is that we don't really know because we're not relying on it's we're not relying on the speed of light or the speed of an electromagnetic um, uh, signal because we're kind of tapping into this you know uh, not quantum level but this like holographic level of this you know mm -hmm. the, you know we have no idea like I mean is this vibrating something to an adjacent uh, uh, dimension or universe or right. is this or is or is this is this resonating to immediately to to something or some consciousness or some intelligence on a planet? Is it a being? Is it a galaxy? Like we don't understand what 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 consciousness really is in terms of our own humanity. So and there like, was a point where I wondered. Pardon me, but I I wondered if 
it's possible that we are also getting these from the supposed underground ET bases that Pat Price remote viewed back in the 70s. And if they're coming up through the ground instead of from space or somewhere outside, they might actually be coming from inside the Earth. Well, here's the thing. I think that this, this matrix, this holographic matrix, is what people are going to tap into uh, for energy purposes, communication purposes. This is just the dawn. Now, this is esoteric. This has been recorded in esoteric knowledge. So there's, you know, very ancient civilizations that have known this and potentially understood this far better than we do, right? So, um, you know, but kind of back to, you know, you know how this, you know, kind of relates back to the to the experiment. We're ha- we're creating a dialogue, and and the dialogue seems to be improving, and the resolution of the responses seems to be improving, and it's not like we're going out there. It's like fishing. I mean, we're not going out there trying to find something. And this is not, this is not BS. <laughs> like, you know, these are, this is auditable. There's a chain of custody to these wave files. We can tell if these wave files have been modified. So these were recorded by Maria in these locations. And then we can give these files to any other person and just give them these timestamps and they can go and take a listen to this. So if somebody does have a more rational explanation for any of these, because there's a variety of different um, uh, sort of elements and different things that we're picking up, then by all means, I mean, we're, we're totally open for it. But I mean, I'm coming at this with, with, you know, 30 plus years of, of audio related experience um, Jonathan, you come with your, you know, all of your different experience. David, same thing. And, you know, together we're, we're basically analyzing what really is turning out to be some very interesting and what seem to be intelligent responses. So, well, I mean, we have six minutes before the break. Why don't you take the next five minutes to go through your last visit? Um, yeah. So, so we've already done the two tones. So, I mean, let's get to the ones that are, you know, the, the really interesting ones. So, I mean, in number six, we have like another kind of whining sound that repeats three times, or, or sorry, number eight. So we'll is play that number 78 minutes, 17 seconds? Uh, no, this is at 65 minutes. No, we'll, we'll, yeah, okay. we'll do, we'll, we'll play number eight no, and then number 10 and 11. Those are the most important ones to finish with. So if Keith, we can line up number eight. That'd be fantastic. So again, yep. So that to me kind of, when I first heard it, almost sounded like a cat meowing. Um, I've repeated that three times. So it just came in once. That, um, but again, it's a very different type of sound that we're picking up. So let's, we'll jump to number 10. And I, had, I just called it like the eerie tone sweep um, because it didn't really, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's eerie. <laughs> I call that one the passing It sounded like, and, and yeah. So I mean, the interesting thing with that, I mean, it's that's. Um, it, I would classify that as a Doppler effect. That's but like, a Doppler, what? Yeah. 
but what is making that sound? Yeah, <laughs> I know. You know, I don't know if you maybe I don't know Keith if you want to play that one again because that's a really you know that's was kind of one of the... oh sorry that was number eleven if we can go back to number ten eerie tone sweep. The craziest thing with that is that it is affecting the other parts of the the noise, like in a very different and kind of unique way. So for me, that was the standout. That was the most interesting thing that we captured because it was just, I mean, it straight up sounds like something that you would hear in a science fiction movie. Like, I mean, it's very odd. Um, And then we'll just kind of finish this up before the the bottom of the hour or the next break. Number 11, this is an... really interesting because you're getting like a three note step da, 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 I think da, da. I called that the fax tone on my yeah. Yeah. so it was really interesting that it kind of and each each t- note step had like I think two or three different like da 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 but again just out of nowhere and in any of our previous recordings haven't picked anything up anything like that up so I mean that was kind of the the analysis from this from this last one and um again i mean we have yet to to do a recording to send out a, a message listen and not get anything so far you know each each time has been a little bit different and we found some really interesting stuff so um yeah yeah very and, interesting yeah jonathan yeah it, it's very cool that you picked up a lot of these as well because uh, there's obviously a lot, a lot to listen to there, but yeah, really, 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 really interesting stuff there. Well, I'll go through my items a bit later, um, but we're coming up on the break, and what I would like to put forth to um, David and Maria and Thomas. Uh, by the way, Thomas has a, a pen name or a pseudo name, James. So sometimes. I will call him James by accident, but (laughs) his real name is Thomas. So what I'd like to put forth is if um, you folks have a take on basic differences, if any, what are the basic differences between the types of technology we see with the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge, which is much older, and then the arches, which are much, much older, there are three different technical, uh, well, they're, they're pieces of technology, and they, they operate in similar ways, but they're, they're all different, too. And I kind of have some, some thoughts on this, so I, I thought I would put that out there to you guys. And when we, we come back, uh, maybe we can touch on that and and get some thoughts from you folks. So, um, yeah, Keith, if you want to go ahead and fire up the, the music, we can, we can head into a, a break here. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We will be back after this break. Do not touch that dial.
medications, prescription creams. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. That song was called Lazy Camel by Michael C. Ramir. And uh, he's one of my favorite artists. From You can find his music on mixkit.com and audiojungle.net. And another shout out to our engineer extraordinaire, Keith Morgan, who's always in the background. And uh, Keith... He's taken over the webmaster duties from Cynthia, and he's he's doing a great job. And, boy, his loyalty and commitment is, uh, I find, really impressive. So thank you, Keith. Um, now let's get back to our subjects. And the, the question I put out before the break, I wonder if David or Maria, David, do you have anything to add after hearing Thomas's items? Would you like to pitch in? Well, I, I mean, I was kind of going in a very abstract direction when I was listening to Thomas. First of all, that really choppy sound, that like that, 
that makes it impossible for me. I don't know what happened this time, but that makes it impossible for me to look at numbers the way I look at numbers because that's that's a kind of a um, too much static noise kind it's of. Not really, static, really it's not static. It's like a. It. It yeah. really pollutes it. And I had that happen once when I was using my radio and I went direct from cable into recorder. I got a similar thing, but I know we hadn't had that before, but I'm just letting you know that I can't look at numbers the way I look at numbers with that. But when I listen to what Thomas is picking up, <clears throat> my mind just zeroes in and I eliminate all that noise on these incredible frequencies and sounds that he, that he's tuning into. And what I started to think of again, because one of the things I started with tonight is how the speed of sound propagates at different velocities through different materials. And it turns out that initially it was thought that the fastest material sound moves through is diamond, but actually beryllium mm. barrel is much faster and beryllium is of course in aquamarine and emerald <clears throat> gems and beryllium is beryllium dust is extremely toxic but also the descriptions of ezekiel's wheels by the prophet ezekiel were that he thought the wheels were made out of beryllium and, mm-hmm. and of course if you extracted beryllium from the gem it, it's kind of a metal it's a metal and it's it's, it produces a vibration that goes over 30,000 miles an hour. I mean, almost 30,000 miles an hour. So there's nothing faster vibrationally than beryllium. So I was thinking of the speed of sound in bluestones, which is feldspar and quartz and mica. And I was thinking of, okay, what is the sound that, see, when you create a sound with a speaker, you're you're vibrating different materials depending on what that speaker is made out of, what the magnet is made out of, and this well, it vib- it's vibrating the air, right? So yeah, it vibrates the air, but the, yeah. but different metals sound different. Yeah, right. Like if I aluminum actually vibrates incredibly fast, the speed of sound moves through aluminum amazingly fast, and iron too, you know, yeah. is incredibly fast. But nothing faster than beryllium. So, but every metal has a different. If I produce the same frequency, and I vibrate aluminum, it, it's a little softer than iron. Like it has a different quality to the the frequency. So, it's frequency alone is not it. And I was thinking, these sounds that Thomas is zeroed in on are are like a vibrating they sound like a vibrating metal and i'm trying to identify the metal and again different metals the speed of sound moves at different velocities they're not all the same they're all completely different and and that really interests me as a subject i've always been interested in 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 that like what does gold sound like versus tin right like gold is a is going to actually the speed of sound is not going to move very fast through gold or lead because they're very dampening. They're going to they're going to be really warm compared to a harder material. Harder material will vibrate faster, right? Like like diamond is is compressed carbon. So well, and that's but that's what's also interesting is that like it's got a very metallic 
um, sort of characteristics, got a characteristic to it, but it's being like what we're what we're sending out is like more connected towards like more of like a rock source, right? Well, what we do, what we do in radios to generate uh, 432 megahertz, for example, we tend to use quartz, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> we vibrate quartz with an electric charge, a tiny quartz crystal, to generate radio frequencies. Mm-hmm. That's how we generate radio frequencies, but but quartz isn't very fast. It's amazing. We probably haven't even thought of what could happen if we generated radio waves with something that moves much faster, and that would be diamond, and next is beryllium. So diamond and beryllium are the fastest vibrators there are, and and that means there may be a message they're trying to tell us. There's something they're trying to tell us, and if they're trying to send us a message, then maybe there's there's a message because it sounds more metallic than quartz it does and the cra- the, the crazy thing is that the like those sounds from um like as a uh, from like a sound design perspective so like as a sound designer you learn to recreate like organic sounds using electronic fundamental uh, these like so those um uh, frequencies that I was talking about before, like your sine waves or your square waves or your triangle waves. So different combinations and, and multiples of these. So if you've got eight oscillators or 16 oscillators, you can craft uh, really, you know, really complex sounding uh, textures and tones, um, you know, by, you know, further incorporating different types of modulations or things like that. So, the thing that's that's really interesting about these metallic sounds is that these are complex sounds. I mean, it's not a it's not a kind of a fundamental sound. Like that is a tremendously more complex. If I was to recreate that sound, that is a complex sound to recreate compared to me just having to recreate, you know, an 871 hertz sine wave, right? Oh yeah, no, no doubt. It's metallic. So, it's it's so, not- it's but not it's, like if you ring a quartz bowl, yeah. like glass, let's say glass Pyrex vibrates, it, it sound will move it. Well, here's the thing. For it to go down, for it to Doppler down like that, you would either have to bend whatever the source of the sound is, or it would have to move away and be getting louder as it's moving away to keep the same uh, amplitude modulation. Mm-hmm. So like that, that bending noise, that to recreate right 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 to recreate that sound physically like imagine if you like uh like with a string like if you're vibrating a string you'd have to like pull it tight and vibrate it and then sort of let it kind of loose i mean when you really start deconstructing how you would recreate that particular noise it's well, not just a, it's not just a, I know that's what I'm saying like if I blow through a, a a grass reed in my on my hand it has because it's grass it has a certain vibration to it right mm-hmm. if if you ring an aluminum bar or a glass bar and I've done all this or an iron bar I don't really like the sound of iron myself different well, I have the most important question here for Maria were there any trains in the proximity? <laughs> when you did no, this? no, those aren't trains. It sounds like trains. I had the same thing happen here. No, it's it's something happening through the connection. Because Maria, you're going from 
the radio cable out, you're not recording through the microphone, right? No, it's going from a line out. No. Yeah. And there's no it, trains. But yeah, so I can I can uh, sorry Maria to interrupt, but I'll just I'll explain sort of from a technical perspective how we're doing the recording because this is not something that we've really spoken about. <laughs> so uh, Maria is using a sound recorder, um, and the sound recorder has uh, sort of two ways that you can record through it. It's got very high quality microphones, um, but then you can also have a line in. Now the radios we're using basically. Uh, what would normally connect to a single mono earphone out of the radios into the sound recorder. So the the unfortunate thing is is that we're not able to record a stereo field sound because there's only one uh, sound source. So when you take a look at the waveforms that we that we analyze, it's only coming in on one side because normally um, the earpiece that you would connect to the ham radio would just be kind of like a single, uh, a single earpiece. So um, even if the, some of the helicopter sounds would be, you know, some type of, of feedback, if that was the feedback that we're picking up, um, it still doesn't explain any of these. Any of the stuff that we've been really focusing on, because we haven't really been focusing on, you know, that kind of helicopter sound, other than the fact that that helicopter sound seems to get way, 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 way more intense, the closer Maria gets to the center of Stonehenge, to the point where when she did do the recording in the center of Stonehenge, all we could hear was that, you know, that helicopter, that helicopter sound. So I'd like to put a question to Maria, and that is, do you think it's possible using our current level of technology, is it possible to map the frequency of the stones in Stonehenge? For example, this blue stone resonates at this frequency, or, or do they all resonate at exactly the same frequency, or are they, they all different? What do you think about that? I would imagine they're, they're, they're all different, but that would be a very interesting project uh, to do because even when it comes to the large sunken stones at Stonehenge, you have different qualities within them. For example, um, one of the trilithons has more iron in it, so it's a very reddish hue. So there's quite a few uh, iron uh, sections within Stonehenge itself, and so I think that would add to uh, its change in frequency, and that that trilithon is actually in situ, and some of the stones at Stonehenge were put in a, a different position when they were uh, re-erected, so oh, the ones that right. are in situ have a very uh, strange properties within them themselves, and you can look at it at a glance. Maria, you know what... The uh, what the most common metal would be in, in Stonehenge? Is there one more metal that's more prevalent than the others? Indeed, the actual sarsen stones themselves, it's, uh, it's iron. Iron, okay. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to kind of uh, interject with something. Maria, with your, with your near-field recorder, um, the quality of those microphones is, like, it's really, it's, it's very, very good. I think what could be really interesting is at some point, because you were mentioning that you have a stone um, that vibrates, that when you, when you, that, that makes a tone, like a flat stone. In your house. In your house? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. What would be, yeah, what would be interesting would be to just use your recorder um, close to it. It can just be, you know, somewhat close, like within a foot or six inches or something. And then however you can make it sort of ring, if we could record that so we could kind of listen to it because that near field re recorder will do a really nice job of recording that. And then we can also take a look to see what frequency that is at. Um, and then sort of uh, a second sort of point is, again, because the microphones on her particular recorder are quite sensitive, um, it could also be kind of interesting just as an experiment um, as we kind of figure out maybe some other ways that we can connect some type of a, a low profile kind of sensor to the stones, whether via a wire or something. Um, you know, that again, we kind of just experiment just with the microphone and see if there's anything that's picking up because I believe that the sensitivity of those microphones um, goes up quite high. So I was just kind of throwing out there as an idea, you know, if there is another opportunity to uh, to be able to sort of go there with your recorder to to sort of maybe record some different uh, different kind of in, in some different kind of ways as well. Could you do that, Maria? Yes, yes, I could. I mean, I, I can do that in my uh, own home. I've got very large pieces of sarsen, uh, which is made up at Stonehenge and Bluestone. And also uh, where I live quite close to the Avery Stone Circles, the, the largest stone circle in the world, uh, I, the outcrop there is um, very large as well. So by outcrop, I mean that's the kind of source of the sarsen stones for Avebury and indeed Stonehenge. And I can go there and do some re recordings as well. And maybe so what you could them, do uh, is, maybe what you could also do sorry. is sort of in those locations, use some of your uh, dosing skills to sort of identify maybe some very kind of energetic areas and then try to do the recordings from, from those particular positions. And should we oh, yes, do it uh, on a particular day as well, Maria? Shouldn't you? Well, yes, I mean, the, the, yes, I mean, we're, we're coming up to uh, Beltane uh, on May the, the 1st. That's the next festival date coming up. Oh. So the, uh, that's quite close time. And again, it's one of the portal days. And Beltane uh, is really one of the strongest uh, times. Of, of the year, like we say, midsummer, midsummer's eve is very strong, and so is Beltane. Let's plan on that if it fits into your schedule. That would be fantastic. What about could... getting a recording of the stones with a really good microphone and then transmitting that at 432 megahertz? That's what. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Is that if Maria, um, you know, if your schedule permits it, um, if you could record some of the stones that you have at your home. And then what we can do is actually incorporate that as well as some of the answers from this recording that we just analyzed um, and some of the encoded frequencies, again, refining the message going out. I think, you know, the fact that this is close to your home, um, yeah, it would be really fantastic to be able to kind of do that as a, as a next part of the experiment um, to try to get some other data to be able to analyze. Yeah. Good idea. Can you no. actually record in the field? Like, can you ring a blue one of the big stones in Stonehenge, the the, the blue stone and the sarsen, and can you actually hear it acoustically, so that you could record it if there was no background wind or car traffic or anything like that? I can certainly do the sarsen stones uh, in situ like that, David. But the blue stones are about a hundred. 
20 miles away from me. But uh, I, I am going to the Bluestones uh, in the summer, so I could uh, do some recordings of the Bluestones sounds. Yeah, if you held a microphone on a stand really close, just like a couple of millimeters away from the stone, and, and if you did it at a time of day when there's no background traffic i don't know how far away that freeway is i remember going there but i just can't remember well she's going to but she's going to be going to a, a site that's closer to her home which i think is fantastic because it's it's kind of going to allow us to do like an a b test you know based off of just more of like the can you imagine, thomas if you could if you could analyze the wave structure of the ringing of that type of stone well, she could be, I mean, at that point, if like whenever she goes back to Stonehenge, you know, in the summertime or, or whenever, um, I mean, all she would really need to do is really just kind of place the near field recorder directly onto the stone themselves. I mean, these near field recorders, you know, can pick up a lot. Now, the thing is, is that beyond your acoustic uh, range, like the, or the human hearing range, you know, what you and I should be looking at are, you know, are there other, you know, how, how, and maybe this is a question that we can put out to the audience if anybody has any kind of an idea as to how you would sort of <laughs> detect, I guess, more of like a geologic uh, uh, vibration. I'm sure there's some type of a geolo uh, geological uh, sensor that would sort of allow you to kind of, um, you know, identify those types of, of, of vibrations. But I think that, I mean, Maria, I think, you know, we were we were all kind of wondering what the next step would be um, with this. I mean, if you'd be willing to go out and do that, I think that would be a really amazing thing and probably a little bit less <laughs> stressful for you to kind of be doing this a little bit covert, you know, as you've, you've kind of you know, had to do in, you know, not so obvious way when you've gone to, to Stonehenge to do this, right? Just out of respect of the sites and everything else. So I think this could be really interesting and and it would be great to be able to to try to incorporate something from your own collection of stones um, as part of the transmission that would go out. Yes, yeah, so, so I can do that. Um, not a problem. And it's never a problem to go to Stonehenge anyway. So it's, uh, it's all good from my point of view. But I think it would be good to, like you say, put that transmission out as well, because it will be the stone speaking in a sense. Exactly. Like, exactly. You could also hit the stones with an iron hammer. I mean, like that you're saying they have. They're not going to let her hit the stones. <laughs> they arrest her. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, no, but if you got a sample of the same type of stone, you could. Like one of the things I do when I ring, you know, metal objects, I take really thin fishing line, drill a hole, and then hang it. So you could hang a stone and hang it from a beam, and then it, it's got to be really thin fishing line. It, I found um, cotton string doesn't work. It's too damp. If it's really thin fishing line and you drill a hole with a drill, I mean, if you can drill through the stone, um, then you got a hole and you can hang it and then ring it, and then we'll know what that material sounds like. Well, um, I'm going to step in here and mention that um, if you'd like to call and add a comment or ask a question of our guest, the call-in number is 917-889-8802. That's listed on the, the show page there. And we have about six minutes coming up to the break. And I still have a number of items 
uh, we haven't got to that I spent a good bit of time and I've been waiting for a couple, three weeks to talk about them. So um, I think uh, this would be a good time to jump into there. Uh, let's go to my item number one. And to get there, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, and it takes you to the show page, and you'll see fast links uh, to John. So my item number one, um, first of all, the, the first recording I reviewed was from a guy named Paul, who he's out in the Rocky Mountains, and he went out. He's not near a sacred site. He's in the mountains. And he went into the, the forest in the mountains to meditate, and he sent the message and recorded it. So I listened to that first, and what struck me was the amount of the background noise just is very reminiscent of a faint radio station that you can't pick up. You know, it's just in the, you can hear it in the background, and this, let's say if, if you're, you're tuning in uh, KISS 108 FM, but you're hearing maybe a radio station on either end of that frequency, like 108.01 or zero. So my, my question to myself is, are we hearing, is this background noise? It just sounds like a, a faint radio station. Are we actually hearing the echoes of radio stations or are we hearing the, the ether, these are, would be people's thoughts. This isn't people talking. So among this background noise, I, I also hear this, I think of it as whale song. This is, and it's, uh, it's a rising tone, like, like I just made. And um, I, I didn't add it to my items as an audio clip, but uh, I next went to Ralph's recording. Ralph went to the Balanced Rock in New York, and he set, sent the signal and then recorded. I guess he was sleeping during this. So I wondered if I would hear any kind of whale song on Ralph's recording, and sure enough, like a minute, uh, I mean, it's uh, 37 seconds in, I hear this this time it's descending. It's a kind of noise. And, and um, so Keith, you have access to my items there. Um, can you play that warm moon whale audio clip for us uh, on my item number two? So you can hear that that whine, and I I have whales on the brain because a they're millions of years older than humans. They've been evolving for far longer. Whales have developed brains that are much more sophisticated than ours. Not to mention they're the size of a Volkswagen. But they whales never sleep. Whales and dolphins, cetaceans never sleep. They they can't or they will drown. So they've developed a way to, at, at will, they can shut off half 
side of their brain and let that side sleep and the other side stays awake and just you know if, if they fall start falling asleep they wake up so it, it's it's a life-saving technique that they evolved and so they're going to their brains are going to hear things that we don't even understand or don't hear or recognize as anything they're just way beyond us so that's why I, I'm always have the whales in the back of my mind, like the movie Star Trek IV, you know, where the alien sends the, the message. And so to think these sounds could be meant just for humans, it's probably a bit ignorant. And so um, when I hear these sounds, that's what I think of as, as the whales. So in my item number three, this image reminded me, this is um, from... Is this Ralph? Uh, no, this is from, uh, I believe this is Maria's. And these bands remind me of the murals in the Utah Swell at Arches National Park, which you can see in item number four. I'm starting to recognize after, you know, studying hundreds of these murals all over Canyon Lands and Arches Park and I, I notice patterns and similarities, and these are very old, so they're very worn, of course, and yet um, you still see things we're in had, here. We're, and, we're headed to break here. Oh, it's break time already. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We'll be back after this short break. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. 
talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is the final half hour. The time does fly. And we're going through my items. Uh, Let's see. We left off at um, item number four. And items five, six, and seven. uh, Five and six, they're the more mural images that you can look at there. And number eight is a waveform of this bizarre male whisper that uh, this is on Ralph's. We're still on Ralph's uh, recording at the Balanced Rock in New York uh, on the Equinox. So this is around the same time Maria is in Stonehenge. We have Ralph in New York uh, doing his recording. So uh, when I heard this and uh, the other items, items through 11, uh, just additional waveforms. I'm zooming in on this whisper and this kind of thing. So we get to item number 12. And uh, Keith, would you go ahead and play the audio clip for item 12, 12A? Yeah, that is very bizarre. So did that say goodbye? I don't know what he's saying, but um, you know, I again, I was thinking about: Are we hearing this from 3D space, or is this, you know, we're hearing thoughts out of the, the Schumann residence? So I I messaged Ralph and I I said, Ralph, were you talking during this, or what was going on? Because I got this male voice. So he listens to it. Well, he, first he says, no, I was sleeping during this. I, I said it and then set and forget and took a nap. And then when he listened to it, he, he says, that sounds like me. But again, I was sleeping. So I'm wondering if this is Ralph in, in his dream or hearing him talk in his sleep. I, I don't know, but it's certainly very bizarre. Um so now we go to item 13, where this is where, um, this is Maria's recording now. The rest of my items are, are Maria's recording. And 
I call it seeing things because I start after a while, I start seeing things in this yellow orange area as if these colors were embossed and I start seeing patterns and, and figures like maybe bust of people or this kind of thing. And, and so it made me think of uh, number 14. I, again, we're at Arches National Park and this area, it's next to uh, Park Avenue. If, if you want to go on Google Earth and, and look at this area, I call it Grand Gallery. It has no name. It's just my name for it. But uh, it's just incredible murals all through this Grand Gallery area. And you can see there, <clears throat> you know, you start seeing uh, angels and Anunnaki and uh, wow, it, it just starts popping out after a while. You, you look at this stuff long enough and think, my God, these are beautiful murals. We need to preserve these and and uh, enhance them so that we can see them in their all their glory. So number 15, <clears throat> I'm going to skip through some of these because if you're not wearing headphones, you're not really going to hear uh, these sounds if we just play them back over the radio. <clears throat> but uh, you're free to, to play them for yourself and, and listen. Um, number 16, I, I think you can hear that one pretty well. Like Keith, if, if you want to go ahead and play number 16A. was very faint but you can hear it and uh, we can always isolate that further to, to bring it out more uh, if need be um, number 17 we don't need to play that it's just uh, as I was talking about this background noise it sounds like uh, an FM station that's just too far away you can't quite pull it in but you can you can hear it and number 18 I don't even know what that is, if that's a noise that Ralph was, uh, oh no, this is uh, Maria's recording. I, I don't know what that sound is at all. Uh, I guess you could play that one, Keith, 18A. That's certainly like no other sound we've heard, but I don't know if that's just uh, somebody moving or, or what that is, but um, for what it's worth, it's there. And number 19, <clears throat> I'd like to go back and do this sound again and clean it up and just pick out the, the sound and skip all the other frequencies that are around it so you can hear it better. So maybe we'll come back to that on another show because... It sounded to me almost like it was a, it's a woman saying Ela, but then I thought, isn't Richard's dog um, is, that has passed away uh, a couple of years ago? I guess that was um, his dog's name is um, sounds very much like that. I'm trying I'm trying to blank right now what the dog's name, but it's you know Sela or something like that, and I didn't have a chance to ask Richard, but. That, that caught my attention. And number 20, it sounds like a woman's voice saying robber. And again, I, 
I'd like to go back and do some of these sounds where I eliminate the other frequencies and just zero in on the robber sound so we can you can hear it better. Um, number 21 through 24. These are amplitude waveforms. I, I noticed I'm looking for patterns and in number 21, you see this is Paul who was meditating in the woods. There's no sacred sites nearby, just him meditating. And then in item 23 on Ralph's recording, you can see in, in number 21, the highest peak there in the, when you're looking right to left and you have this rise and fall, the highest peak there, you know, it's kind of like a mountain. There's, there's two peaks that make up this little mountain here. And when you look at number 23, you see that same mountain uh, in that waveform, uh, just, just uh, uh, kind of halfway through, uh, looking right to left. You see that same mountain with the two peaks, and I thought that was interesting. Um, and then in number 24, you have Maria's recording, which... Yeah, you know, it's just off the scale. It's just the amplitude is so high because Stonehenge uh, amplifies everything. And in number 25, this is a look at Maria's one hour and 20 minutes of recording. And this is the Hertz waveform. And you see these sweeps, uh, the, the bright yellow spots in there. They descend and uh, some are rising. And in 25A, I, uh, that's a pitch curve, so you can see it a bit more clear where the pitches are changing. And these, these curves are also where we're hearing some of these tones that Thomas was playing earlier. And uh, 25B, I've zoomed in a bit on, on these curves so you can see them a little better. And of course, the Indian singing bowl. And um, yeah, I call it arpeggio close-up because uh, you can play a chord a couple different ways. You can, like on a guitar, you can just strum it one quick stroke and it's just a ring. The arpeggio is when you stroke the chord uh, in steps like you stretch it out. And, and uh, yeah, it just reminds me of an arpeggio chord and so I took some images of uh, I just googled sheet music and these are three of the first ones that came up and in 25d you can see where uh, I, I put them up against the, the Hertz waveform from the Maria's one hour and 20 minute recording and uh, just similarities there and then I happened to go I, I did this uh, analysis a couple of weeks ago and just by you know coincidence, I, I took a break and I go on YouTube to watch something. And on my feed is Steve Vai, Teeth of the Hydra. It just came out the day before. And uh, Steve Vai is one of the most talented musicians on the planet. He's a master entertainer, performer, composer, guitarist. And he teamed up with Ibanez to create this insane instrument it's all kinds of guitars and other uh, electronic uh, 
uh, applications in there that he, he can play with and play with the sound. And it's hard to even describe. I encourage everyone to go on YouTube and watch this video. It is beautiful and astounding and amazing. And I think he's, he's really, he's taken us to another level where other people are going to follow in his footsteps and, and take this to other levels where instead of just playing a guitar, we have these other instruments for interpreting and creating different kinds of music. So I, I just love that teeth of the Hydra. Now, number 26, this is, ah, this is where we get into Maria, really get into Maria's stuff here like Thomas was. This is, um, we can skip over this because Thomas already played this, uh, one, one minute, 18 seconds. Um, and you can see the pitch curve there of, of what we were listening to before. And number 27, that's uh, six minutes and 50 seconds, 58 seconds in. Uh, I label it narrow because I, I use a tool to just go in and grab, uh, if you click on that image, you can see where I highlight, I can just highlight a section and then play that back. And you don't hear all these other frequencies. So allows you to hear these tones much better and so Keith if, if you can play number 27 there we've already heard this with Thomas but we're going to hear it without all of the other frequencies around it so it's worth playing again and that's it yeah these quick tones that come in where the I'm hearing the rock is ringing the rock is resonating from these receptions so um, in 27a I've I've added some graphics here where I've just outlined on the left side is like a white square and this white square you can see that the orange and yellow is faded and when you're listening to it, the static gets quieter. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, it gets back loud again. And then over on the right side, I have these black rectangular squares drawn over. These are tones that are steady. They're steady tones that are being played through Maria's recording. And... They're mostly covered up by the static, but you can hear them and you can signal them out, but they're steady tones. So in addition to these sweeps, these descending and ascending tones, you have in the background, these steady tones that are just going beep through the whole thing. Yes, they're quiet and everything, but they are there and, um, Let's see, let's go to the next one is number 28. That was the bird whistle. Tom had played this before. And um, let's see, did I do a narrow? Uh, let's see. No, I did not. 
All right, let's move along in number 29. This one's a bit hard to hear. When when I'm going through it, I I hear them pretty clearly, but um, then when you record them, you just play them back over the radio or the internet. It, it It's not as discernible. So I encourage everyone to have headphones. Uh, but this sound just reminded me of hydraulics because you hear this change in tone like almost like you have this mechanical hydraulic machine so could you keith if you could uh, play number 29 let's see what that sounds like now go ahead and play that one more time Oh, yeah, I think you can hear that fairly clear. Now, number 30 was interesting because we're getting uh, the most inter- interesting data came toward the end of this recording. And uh, if you click on the image, you can see that where you're at uh, the playheads at one hour and three minutes. And you have this loud static, you know, bright yellow and you have the random um, bongo drum or whatever that sound is. I've called it a coconut before, like if you took a spoon and banged on the side of a, of a coconut or a watermelon or something like that. And it's just a random boop, 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 boop. But then there, uh, there's this burst of static, and all of a sudden the, the drum starts it starts a steady beat it's not random anymore and uh there's something significant there going on i'm not sure what it is but keith could you play number 30 Number 31, the buzzing. Can you play that for us, please? And number 32 are some harmonics. Uh, Can you play that one, Keith, please? Number 33, uh, harmonic, I call it harmonic coconut because as Thomas and I mentioned before, the harmonics are affecting the other tones surrounding it. So Keith, can you play number 33? I think that's the one, Thomas, she said sounded kind of like a cat to you. Um, I like number 34 because you can hear the waver of the tone in this one where it goes. So it's faint, but you can hear it, Keith. So you might have to play it a couple of times. Go ahead. 
Right. And in 34A, if you click on that image, this is interesting because you can see these blue lines, which represent changes in pitch. They're happening most at the 432 uh, hertz. It uh, says A4. If you look on the right side where you have these, uh, the notes, the tones are listed as, um, as notes. A4, that's 440 uh, hertz. We're sending out a signal at 432, and then we're getting back these pitch changes uh, at 432. So I, I just found that curious and, and wondered if that has any significance. Like, is that uh, the blue stones are singing the most, or what, what stones are singing the most? during this recording was, was what I was wondering. And 35, we've heard Thomas already played. This was, when I heard this, this was the most interesting sound from the recording. Um, go ahead and play it again, Keith, if you would, number 35, the passing track. And number 36, uh, we already heard from Thomas. I, I had called this the empty toner. And um, we have a few minutes. So who wants to, uh, do, you, do you folks have anything you want to add after hearing my items? Yeah, the one, um, the one that you, you featured, which, um, uh, it was like a buzzing. It was a buzzing noise. I, yes. I, yeah, I heard that one too. The interest. I think you called it like the bees or something. Uh, it was all buzzing. Yeah, like I. The the interesting thing that I found about that is that the cadence, uh, like the rhythm of that, almost sounded conversational. It was like I thought it, it was a voice. I thought it was a voice as well that it was like trying to pierce through, but it was just kind of like kind of static. But the like the the cadence, like the rhythm of it, was very. It it came across as conversational. I didn't highlight it for whatever reason, but I do remember hearing that when I listened through the whole thing. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out. That uh, pardon me. That that was a good. Um, was definitely a good catch. Um, and it definitely seems as though we've we've sort of kind of both identified i think it's really important for people to understand that um we all analyze this completely independently so i mean this is the first time that i'm hearing what jonathan has kind of pointed out and and vice versa so it's it's kind of interesting to sort of see that there's an overlap that we're both actually identifying kind of the same sort of oddities in in the recordings all right maria would you like to pitch in on where do you think we should go next well, Richard at one point did mention Silbury Hill, uh, which is the largest man-made mound uh, in Europe for uh, a transmission. I don't know if Richard's still thinking of that. Hmm. Um, yeah, that would be cool. David, what do you think would be a good, do you have an opinion on where we should go next? 
Well, even though I like to see the transmission inside the Great Pyramid, Silvery Hill seems like an amazing idea, actually. One thing that I would like to sort of bring up, and this is something that we've been kind of talking about over the last little bit, and this is where I think Ralph um, could really kind of come in. And, um, you know, the same thing with you, Jonathan, but I think that, you know, maybe this next experiment, being a little bit closer um, to your home, uh, Maria, where we can kind of, you know, work around schedules a little bit more, like really try to coordinate um, so that, you know, David's able to be listening from his radios, that we're all kind of really doing this super, super coordinated. Um, but I think what would be really interesting is that, you know, collectively the people that are a part of the experiment and anybody else that's listening that would want to kind of sort of join in, but really to kind of put like some type of like a more kind of astral intention kind of going out there. And um, I know, Maria, you know, you, because of your Druid background, had mentioned that, you know, when you were going into Stonehenge, that you were kind of going in in certain sort of, um, you know, kind of special ways. Maybe you can kind of talk about that. But I think it'd be interesting for us to kind of expand outwards from just a purely kind of super, you know, as scientific as we're trying to, to sort of make this, you know, to really kind of put in a little bit more of like an ethereal, uh, kind of intention um, before this uh, the the experiment that you can maybe do um, next week, sort of in and around your your area in the Aubrey Hills, was it? Um, the well, or... I have to cut you off there, Thomas, because uh, our time has run out. So <laughs> um, we'll pick this up another show, and I'm sure Richard will be back. Uh, and I want to thank our listeners tonight for joining us. Um, if there's anybody out there that could go to Arches Park and Delicate Arch, and uh, if we provide you with a radio and you'd be willing to send uh, the signal into the arch and then record whatever comes back, I think that would be very cool if we could make that happen. So uh, until then, thank you, Maria, David, and Thomas. My name is Jonathan Womack. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time here on the other side of midnight.com. <laughs> <laughs>